0: Welcome to this special episode of the Doctority Plastic Surgery podcast. We are collaborating with the Time's Up PRS initiative, which promotes diversity in plastic surgery education and leadership. In this series, we will be interviewing plastic surgeons about their career paths and learning about the experiences that led them to become the successful surgeons that they are today. Welcome to the Time's Up PRS podcast. This month, we
1: are highlighting the lives and careers of several African-American plastic surgeons in celebration of Black History Month. My name is Rose, and I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Yemi Oginlay, who is the Director of Transgender Surgery and an Assistant Professor in the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at the University of North Carolina. Dr. Yemi, welcome to the podcast. I'd like to start off by having you briefly introduce yourself and how you identify.
2: Oh, yes. He, him, pronouns, plastic and reconstructive surgeon at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I have a broad practice, including a lot of cancer reconstruction, and I head to do a complex recon. I have an interest in complex genital urinary reconstruction. And I also do a little bit of everything, some hand surgery, some cosmetic work, and of course, some transgender surgery as well.
1: Next, I would love to learn more about how you grew up and what got you first interested in medicine.
2: So I grew up abroad actually, and it's very interesting because as a kid, I wanted to design cars. That's what I wanted to do. Up until late in high school, that was really what I wanted to do. But then I found out that I fell in love with biology and, and I really didn't even have to work really hard to do really well in it. I enjoyed plants and animal biology. I enjoyed all the human aspects of it. I had top scores in it. On the other hand, I didn't enjoy math and physics as much, which is what you need to do for some of the engineering related work. I-, I liked drawing, but the computational bit was a little bit of a challenge and it wasn't as much fun. Eventually I did well in it, but then because I liked biology so much, it was sort of in an environment where I have quite a good number of uh, mentors in medicine as well. And so I just slowly went that way. But I'd always been interested in helping people make it a difference, I think. The medicine is a calling. And if you're going to be a physician, you really should make sure that you look after people and, and that you care for them beyond and above all the other considerations we have to deal with in practice.
1: You mentioned having some great mentors that really inspired you to pursue medicine. Could you talk a bit more about them?
2: Yes. I had a mentor for every different thing. My dad is a primary care physician, but he was some of the old school guys who did. He had a very Broad practice. These are people, especially in West Africa where we lived, do cesarean sections and gynecological operations and hernias and appendectomies. And and he was just a guy that you went to if you, if you had a health problem. So it was a broad base and it was very busy and seeing how people felt in the community about his care and what he brought to, to the community. I thought was a big deal that filled me with pride and he, he was hands off. And he said, you know, if you want to do it, just know it's a very engaging and very busy profession. And you'd have to work weekends and all this stuff. And and that was pretty clear from the get go. But but I sort of felt some of the pride from being around him and, and hearing how people were affected by his work. And some of that steered me a little bit into wanting to become a doctor.
0: Now from medicine,
1: what got you interested in surgery and specifically plastic surgery?
2: It's really funny. So like I said, you know, I was the kid who made wood and made stuff when I was a a little kid and wanted to draw new things and redesign cars because they didn't look quite as nice. And and so I was always interested in design and I still am. But just because I like to use my hand a lot, from my very first surgical rotation in med school, it spoke to me as a specialty, and I knew this was what I wanted to do. I really didn't really feel that way about anything else as a specialty. I was the kind of guy who wanted to see patients get better fast, wanted to use my hands to make them better. But I thought also that cancer care is a passion of mine, and I was seen to be the toughest patients to look after by far. A fair number of cases, they wouldn't even make it out of the hospital or to the other side of treatment. I thought that was the biggest challenge there was. And so initially, I thought I wanted to be a surgical oncologist, which then explains why I then went to grad school and I did cancer epidemiology for grad school. And, and I still have a fair bit of interest doing some of that cancer work. A lot of my research is in, you know, secondary lymphedema or cancer-related lymphedema reconstruction. And so I'm still interested in that all these years down the road. And then when I finished grad school, I then decided I would go general surgery and, and maybe become a surgical oncologist, but then. Further along in my residency training, I wrote to the Sloan Kettering for my surgical oncology and I said to myself, I actually didn't really enjoy you know, the ablation as much as, as the reconstruction because in the operations, I have saying to someone recently, the way you do a triple bypass today is the same way you, do, you did a triple bypass in 1950. The only thing that's probably different is probably maybe use a laparoscopic setup or like a robotic setup, but the operation is still the same. To a large extent, whipples are also still the same. Distal gastrectomies, uh, distal pancreatectomies are still the same. And I thought it wasn't as fun. And like I said, because I was interested in design, on the other hand, there were five, six different ways that you could reconstruct a defect. And so I was like, okay, I guess uh, this is what I'm going to do. And so that's sort of how I got into plastic surgery a little more because I was interested in cancer reconstruction.
0: So you loved working with the the patient population of cancer patients, but then found that you were much more interested in the form and function aspects of plastic surgery, helping reconstruct them and giving them their lives back.
1: Next, transitioning from general surgery to plastic surgery, who are some of your mentors along the way and who are some of your plastic surgery mentors today?
2: Coming out of Gen Surge, I was very fortunate to have two very major, very accomplished plastic surgeons who took me under their wing and, and gave me a push to go in that direction. Because, you know, coming out of GenSurge, everybody in general surgery wants you to be a general surgeon. So if you're going to do a self special in as far out as plastics, not a lot of people are encouraging. It's actually interesting. Both of them are actually African-American surgeons. So there's a Dr. Fordile who was at Columbia and worked at Harlem at the time and was chair of plastics. And, and he was very instrumental. He wrote me letters, encouraged me to do it. And and I still keep in touch with him today, and he's an awesome influence in plastic surgery for me. And then when I went to residency, you know, my program director and chair is uh, Milton Armstrong, who for a very long time was the only plastic surgery uh, program director and chair in the whole country. And so he was also really helpful in you know helping me transition from jam surgeon, showing me the ropes, and and just as a teacher. And I really owe a lot of my skill and critical thinking to the way that, that I learned to do a lot of things from him. And then in sort of cancer reconstruction and and complex microsurgical reconstruction, Gordon Lee was my fellowship director at Stanford and, and it remains an influence today. And we've traveled together and, and I do a lot of things the same way that he does them. And so there's a sort of mentors that have shaped, you know, the way that I practice and, and have been a big influence on my career.
1: Speaking of mentorship, what sort of advice do you have for medical students that are interested in pursuing plastic surgery?
2: I think for, for med students especially, I think you have to ask yourself, why do you want to do what you're doing and, and how important is it to you to do this? Because I think surgical training is uh, pretty long and you also have your s- set up. Especially when you come out uh, to go in a certain way. So somebody who does primary care or family medicine as a specialty sometimes can do. It can be maybe 25, 30 different ways they can practice. But plastic surgery, there's not a lot. You can be a private practice guy, cosmetic, do anything that walks on the door and pays the bills, or you can be a reconstructive surgeon at a hospital employed. Or there's not a lot of variety, and so you have to. Look at it and say, is this really what I want? And, and it takes six years to train, including research time. So it's one of the longer sort of residencies. And, and I, there's nothing I think is such a disservice to patients and to the system more than to have someone who's training and is not really sure that's what they want to do because there's just so much work and, and so much to, to go through the system. People like us even train for eight years, did general and then plastic. Medical students should really be certain that they're interested in, in going all, all route, and, and this is something that they want to do. And once they've got that inspiration, they'll be fine. I tell people the surgery is a lot more, you know, grot work. It's not so much It's good. You have to be smart to get in, even into medical school to stop. And definitely you have to be smart to do well on your exam and progress. But but there's still many smart people in the hospital, even like the nurses and the PAs. Every, everybody's smart. And so I think the difference for someone who, who wants to do, who wants a surgical career is the ability to be there 24 seven and be paying attention and, and be making sure patients are well looked after and then even find time to do some research and academic inquiry. I think people need to be sure that is something that they want to do.
1: And any advice for current residents in plastic surgery training for how to succeed?
2: It's a very funny thing. I remember when I finished residency and it was like my last week, the residents who were the year behind me. were like, you don't have to come to work anymore. We can do the rounds and everything. You should just go on a bed for your own. I like doing what I do. I actually don't want to leave <laughs> because if you're inspired and this is what you like to do, you get out of bed and that's what you want to do. And I think residents also should hopefully find it in themselves. And that's why it's important to have the right motivation in coming into it. I've seen, unfortunately, because of the way we select residents, I've seen situations where people don't pick their specialty until they see the USMLE step one result, which is a practical thing to do. Even if you want to do plastic surgery and you're super inspired, if you bomb the exam, then it becomes really tough. But on the other hand, if you don't really like anything, and then because you get a 270, you now want to do plastic surgery, it may not quite work very well, if you understand what I mean. So I think being inspired and sort of understanding what we do and the difference that we make to patients and the responsibility that we have as surgeons is critical. And if you do have that inspiration inside, I think you'll do a good job. You just focus on it follow the rules, study really hard. When you're not looking after patients, you're studying. When you rest, you can go get some rest or whatever it is you do for fun, but come right back to it. Residency is not, a, it's not an on and off the clock thing. I remember we'd go out and we'd be drinking and we'd be analyzing people's noses and faces and not in a shaming way or, or anything like that, but just that the clinical work is 24-7.
1: On the topic of diversity, how has your identity and the intersection of your identities, such as gender, race, ethnicity, background, socioeconomic status, how has that all come together and influenced your interaction with your colleagues as well as with your patients?
2: I work for a public institution. In fact, I've worked with public institutions pretty much my entire career, except for my year at Stanford, where I was at Stanford as a private institution. Every institution was public. And that was also, some of it was the match. Some of it was where I wanted to go. But I got to say, I'm a Black man, and I grew up in West Africa. I wasn't poor, but I was solidly middle, middle class. But it's not unusual that I go to you a know, state plastics meeting, and I'm the only Black guy in the room. Or even back in the day, not so much now, but even when I was coming out of gen it wasn't... Unusual for me to go to the ASPS meeting and in a you know symposium room or in, a, in an abstract session, I'm the only black guy. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the other people, for some reason, didn't want to have as many black colleagues or whatever. But it's a pipeline problem. It's a societal problem. In general, there are fewer you know black surgeons. But I think the role of everybody including both those of us who are you know, African-American or people of color and those who are not, is to continue to inspire people of various different shades to do what we do. And over a period of time, that's definitely going to change. In addition to that, I carry that with me When I go in a room and I see a patient, like you say, a patient with low socioeconomic backgrounds who will come here where they're uninsured. In a, a metropolis, uh, we're the only public hospital. So patients who can't go, to the private, you know, institutions will come to us and that's fine. We look after them regardless of whether they have insurance, whether they are documented or not. I'm a doctor. I'm supposed to look after patients, which is, you know, one of the things that is a little tricky about private practice. It's more difficult to do that in private practice. You've got to keep the light on. But I, I really do keep But the opportunity that I've been given in mind in in how I relate to patients and colleagues and, and make sure that I do the best that I can. And and I keep, you know, an eye out to mentor people who may be from less minority backgrounds or less represented in medicine, uh, underrepresented in medicine populations, whether that is also from a gendered point of view or, or from a racial or you know, socioeconomic point of view. And I think people need to do that. I, I do some of that work also even outside of medicine. I mentored high school kids from underrepresented backgrounds with I Mentor when I was a training in New York. Even now, I run a book prize uh, for high school students with a social organization that I'm a part of. So I try to do, do that even in and out of the hospital as well.
0: That's great to hear. I think that cultural competence in all patient interactions is really important. I think also for patients, it's really great to see providers that show an interest in their beliefs and values, but also those that they see providers that are like them in some sort of way, connected on some sort of level. Going back to something that you mentioned, how the diversity of
1: plastic surgery has improved, but could still use some work. What are some ways in which we can help improve the recruitment of a diverse set of applicants to plastic surgery?
2: Residency programs need to think carefully about how they interview and about how they select residents or applicants. Unfortunately, you see, what tends to happen is people self-select. And so I think even before the application opens, it behooves us as you know residents and faculty to go out and identify students and say, you can do this. You're a smart kid. You should come see what we do. And I think that's where to start. If you wait until when people apply and then you say, oh, we're not going to apply anybody who's got less than 250 in step one, that's going away anyway. So now it's going to be step two, but we're still going to have to use scores. If you wait until that point, some of the people who score really high, who may be people of color or minorities, may not apply if there's nobody in your division that looks or if they think that your division is not going to be friendly towards them, they'll go do internal medicine and become a cardiologist or whatever else they want to do. So I think we need to even identify either, you know, at the college or high school or med school, at least at med school level, before it's time to apply uh, and inspire some of these really great men and women to come join our specials.
0: And then I was wondering if you could talk more about your interest in global surgery. What got you interested and how have you applied that into your practice?
2: Like I said, I grew up abroad, I grew up in West Africa, so I've always been interested in doing work there. But I think there are two things. One, it's useful and it's it's rewarding to provide care to people who can't get it. If you look, for example, in the Triangle area and you say, how many plastic surgeons are here that someone who has a problem can see? It's probably somewhere between 10 and 12 people who are plastic surgeons here probably even up to 15 people who are plastic surgeons. If you go to a country, I I went on a mission trip to the Gambia, the whole country had no plastic surgery. So those inequalities are important and whatever we can do to make them better, we should. Now, just going down there and doing some plastic surgeries some bone contracture releases and so on for one week and never going back isn't gonna solve the problem. But whatever you can do, my approach to it is from a point of view of going and helping out, I'm interested in education. So I work with folks and I have gone and spent time with people at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. They've got a national training program for plastic surgeons, but they don't do as much complex reconstruction. So we had a little course that they run every few years and I got some Canadian funding and we did some of that work with them. Other things that I'm interested in also is biodesign innovation. And this typically is related to finding ways to use new devices and methods to improve outcomes. But I'm interested in it to not just do that, but also help surgeons in parts of the world where the outcomes are poorer and the resources are fewer to achieve the same kind of outcomes that we can achieve here. So that's to say, if we can figure out a way where we can make it easier for people to get the same wound healing rates that we will get in the first world, for example, in a poor country, then that's a great thing. And we can identify devices that maybe can let us do that. So that's some of the work that I'm interested in doing and, and I've, I've been looking to do in the past couple of years.
1: As the Director of Transgender Surgery at the University of North Carolina, what got you first interested in working with the LGBTQ plus patient population? And what has your experience been like as a gender firm provider?
2: It was really just an opportunity. Like I said, I'm a complex reconstructive surgeon. So I do have a pretty wide repertoire of operations that I do. But it just turned out that the healthcare system here had set up a a transgender health program. And they were looking to have somebody on the plastic surgery team help out with some of the operations. It also happens that one of the few surgeons in the country who do phalloplasties, And so, you know, that was just an opportunity that I had to then use my experience with reconstructive phyloplasties in that population as well, where we found find appropriate candidates of course. That was something that, that just fell in my lap. But it's a population that that requires care and if the plastic surgeons have the skill to help, we should.
1: Is there anything on your CV that we haven't touched on today that you would like our podcast listeners or our Instagram viewers to know about you?
2: When I'm out of the hospital, I like to cycle. I'm a big sort of bicycling, cycling buff. I I like uh, politics and policy. Like like I talked about, I'm interested in bio-design innovation. So those are some of the things that I do sort of outside of, you know, work and outside of school as well. I also like to mentor individuals at different levels, high school, college, medical school. And I like to travel too. Unfortunately, COVID's put a dampener on that in the past three years now. Those are just some other things that I do.
0: Where is the next place you'd like to travel once COVID has died down a little bit? Europe. Any particular reason?
2: I have family in Europe, for one, and I haven't had a chance to spend time with them for a couple of years now. And so all those cousins have grown up recent graduations and everything so I'm looking forward to go out there and then I've always liked traveling in Europe so it's, it's one of the things I like to do so I've been looking to do that again
1: are there any particular research papers that you are particularly proud of or would like to highlight for our listeners
2: I particularly take pride in some of the work that I've been able to do with colleagues and so they, we did this with uh, Dr. Mahmoud at Michigan and Kavira Reganad, who was one of his uh, residents at the time, where we looked at the barriers to breast reconstruction in West Africa. And we did a survey of, of West African plastic surgeons just to see what the barriers are. Because I think that's like the first step. You do the epidemiology and a needs assessment. You try to figure out what people need and what the problems are. And then we look to then build on that, to hopefully get them to do more. So. That's a study that I'm proud of because you don't see a lot of work coming out of that part of the world. And so I'm looking to do similar stuff. I'm looking to start a trial as well with folks there looking at certain questions that I think are germane for the area. So that's some of the work that I'm proudest of because it's not a lot of people uh, can do that work or are doing that work. And so if you go to a place where there's the need, it's great. You can write several different kinds of paper that are global or that, serve the regular population. You see, there's so many people writing um about, you know, a new way to do a breast reconstruction or a new way to treat lymphedema or what the outcomes are after lymphedema or surgery. There's a good number of people across the world who can do that, but there's, there's not as many people looking at why if you get breast cancer in West Africa, you're not able to get a reconstruction beyond the resources. Some of it is resources, but it's not all resources. And so that's one of the more interesting things that that I'm proud of and I'm looking to do more.
1: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today,
0: Dr. Yemi. It was a pleasure meeting you.
2: Certainly. I've had a great time and thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.